Good afternoon. Welcome to International Affairs, Episode 5. I'm Jeremy here with co-host Matt Thomas. Matt is a foreign policy analyst with the Baltic Security Foundation. Um, we thank you for being here, Matt, to talk about NATO and Finland. Matt, what can you tell us about NATO? So NATO is uh, often heard about in the news. We, uh, as the United States, are kind of the the primary leading nation within NATO. Um, and its its purpose obviously goes back to uh, the Cold War and and how in in that particular time frame, right, the Soviet Union wanted to spread worldwide communism and and the Western world, including the United States and, and much of Western Europe, Britain, France, and others, uh, sought to try to kind of push back against this this spread of communism. So NATO goes back with a purpose as a mutual defense uh, alliance looking to combat the, the spread of, of communist tyranny in, in Europe. And so as it was being set up, the, the various countries that joined the alliance wanted to be able to effectively deter the Soviet Union from spreading its ideology, spreading its system of government, and, and even attacking uh, any of the, the countries in, in Western Europe. And so they came up with a, a key piece of the agreement uh, known as Article 5, which essentially says that an attack on one is an attack on all. Okay. And this remains a, a governing principle for NATO to this day. So NATO is a, a mutual defense agreement. Uh, it's an alliance between the United States, Canada, several Western European nations, and then later, as, as the Cold War ended, many of the Eastern European nations that were leaving communism behind joined in, uh, in NATO during the late 90s, early 2000s, and are still joining to this day. So... NATO is uh, is there as a a defensive alliance, right? It is uh, it is not an offensive organization. Uh, it its purpose is primarily deter and defend. Okay, deter and defend against initially the threat of communism, like you were just talking about. And we have a new member of NATO as of recent. I think April fourth. Mm -hmm. Is that correct? We have Finland. Yes, Finland has officially joined NATO now, and Sweden, shortly to come, uh, should be joining soon. And, uh, and so Finland is, uh, is our newest member on the eastern flank within NATO. Okay, and so I think traditionally Finland tried to play the neutrality card, right? Mm -hmm. We have an 830-something mile border that Finland shares with Russia. And so, as communism was spreading and taking hold, Finland wanted to maintain some neutrality being so closely tied to Mother Russia and, and didn't, to want, degree, didn't want to anger Russia. Mm -hmm. Right, and to some degree, Finland was actually bound to neutrality during much of the Cold War because of agreements following... Uh, various conflicts with the Soviet Union back in the 1930s and 40s. So you had this Soviet-Finnish winter war in, in which the, the Finns officially lost, but they, they really humiliated the Soviets uh, and, and didn't lose very much territory at all and maintain their national survival. And so this, uh, this neutrality that they had sought for, uh, for much of their, their 20th century history really was partially imposed upon them, uh, in part because of World War II as well. Um, after World War II, they were forced to, to also remain neutral. Um, during World War II, they had sided with the Axis because of fear of, of another Soviet invasion. So they weren't really necessarily ideologically uh, joining in with the Axis, but they, they joined in because of the Soviets right on their border and they had just fought a war with them. Okay. So, uh, so Finland, uh, has had that neutrality for quite some time. Sweden's neutrality was a little bit more 
ideological uh, in in its nature. Finland's was kind of forced upon it, and at the same time also primarily pragmatic, because Finland sort of followed a, a small nation security strategy, which really focused more on national survival than anything. Okay. Okay, that's fascinating. Uh, and so now NATO, as it was first initially established to help counter the spread of aggressive communism, really gave that security guarantee with the Article 5 mutual uh, mutual defense mutual defense mm-hmm. article. And I'm kind of curious now that Finland, so we had Ukraine trying, uh, applying for membership in NATO. I want to kind of talk to you a little bit about NATO's relevancy today. Mm-hmm. NATO, how do we move forward with changing warfare tactics? So if we talk about cyber attacks, if we talk about other non-kinetic attacks on member countries, is that something NATO is prepared and geared up to do? Also would like to talk about NATO and international law in general, maybe. And the benefit that it still provides to its member states. There's a lot. We could talk for a long Mm -hmm. time about NATO. uh, But I think with new member countries joining the Security Alliance, it's important for international affairs. It's still a very prominent Security Alliance that does have an impact. But moving forward and looking forward over the next five, ten years... As things change, the the real benefits, do they still exist if NATO gets too big and there are too many member countries? What does that do to the security alliance or the, the strength and the power of the security alliance? Mm-hmm. There's a lot, of, a lot of what ifs. And so um, with Finland coming on now, Ukraine's not a part of NATO as we see it. And that really actually played a role in Finland's decision to join NATO because they saw that as, you know, Finland and Sweden prior to, they were officially neutral, but they were sort of NATO partner members, which was the exact same situation that Ukraine was in at that point in time. And Finland saw, oh, yikes, that wasn't enough for Ukraine. And it may not be enough for us either. And so seeing an increasingly aggressive adversary in Russia, which is right on its border, Finland decided that it needed that extra guarantee of of security from other member states within NATO. Sure, sure. Now, with Finland gaining that security guarantee and the other NATO member countries, for the people out there listening, there's Article 5, which is essentially saying you attack, we are a group, we stick Mm -hmm. together. You attack one of our member countries in kind, all of our member countries will now be at war with you. Now have the right to be at war with you. That goes to a committee meeting at NATO, each a consensus meeting. The invocation of Article 5 is voted upon. Mm -hmm. Which, and, by the way, that has only happened once, and that was after 9-11. Okay. Only, so, since from 1949, when NATO started up until 9-11, was the first time an Article 5 invocation took place. And to this day, it's the only time that an Article 5 invocation has taken place. Um, and, and members are, are bound in that situation to support other members, which is not always going to be in every single case that they're sending troops into that particular territory. One interesting case example in this is that Iceland, a very small country with, uh, with NATO membership, uh, doesn't have much of a military and, and really doesn't have very many security concerns uh, given its, its relative isolation from the world. But it has a significant expertise in meteorology and okay. so it's it will frequently contribute meteorological equipment and and uh, personnel trained in 
meteorology to help uh, facilitate that aspect of of a NATO mission. Interesting. Yeah, that is fascinating. Um, yeah, so there are, I guess, member countries that, that there are strengths and weaknesses. It's almost like having a team with multiple, not, mm-hmm. not individual multiple personalities, but a team with different personality types. Each has their strengths, their weaknesses, and they contribute to the mutual security mm-hmm. of the members of that group. And kind of like hockey, it's a game of interchangeable parts. Everybody can kind of fill in where they where they belong and then take on whatever roles they need to, depending on what situation they find themselves in. Okay. Now, with Finland being a recent member, Ukraine doesn't have membership. We've got the situation with Russia-Ukraine happening now. Many of the Baltic states are members mm-hmm. of NATO. Yeah, all, all, uh, all of... Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania um, are all members of NATO, and now Finland joining in. Um, so this really rushes, mm-hmm. locks Russia in mm-hmm. on that west, the Russia's western flank, right? Being completely bound by these countries that are in NATO, right? Okay. And and Russia does not like that at all, especially with with regard to what that does for. Uh, for its capabilities in the Baltic Sea region. Okay. It's kind of, it's, they're fenced in. They, mm-hmm. they feel fenced in. If we think then about the benefit, right? So there, in my mind, I'm thinking there's the Article 5 invocation, which is the big thing everybody talks about with NATO. But each member country that currently is a part of NATO gets to decide what support they either choose to give or not give. And each member country's lawmaking body is also involved in giving that head of state, whether it be Latvia, Lithuania, the power to actually go and provide tanks, airplanes, ammunition, personnel. Are we... Is there any threat currently to NATO and NATO support? I know there's great support for contributing to push back against Russia. But as we bring more members into NATO, what could that potentially do to Article 5 invocations and consensus on security things? Do you have any thoughts on that? Sure. So... The, the consensus um, with, with really what's, what's going on in NATO is that there generally has not been much consensus uh, at any point. And that's, that's something to be expected from a, a broad alliance of uh, democratic nations that all have different governments, that all have uh, different national security strategies. There's a lot more agreement, however in the eastern parts of the alliance, as well as with the United States, especially in times whenever we have a a presidency that is uh, dedicated to security in in Europe. So if we are taking a lead, then there's always a little bit more consensus between the United States and Eastern Europe. Western Europe tends to have a little bit less of that consensus. So... Excuse me. <clears throat> so you have in in that a an alliance that has sort of had these disagreements in the past over you know how much do we contribute to our our national security? Is war possible in Europe? And now we found that yes, it is. Right. <laughs> right. And and so. A lot more of the Western European allies are starting to get more on board with the Eastern European allies, where once uh, you would have uh, the Germans and the French complaining that, uh, that the Latvians, Lithuanians, and Estonians were all paranoid. Now you have, uh, you have this sudden realization that, oh, they, they were right all along, that Russia really is a, a threat. And and Russia sort of, you know, as much as it might complain about NATO uh, growing as an organization, it's sort of done it to itself because 
by being threatening to other nations, they're going to seek to have some way of defending themselves. And in Finland, uh, which once said that the Estonians seemed to have some PTSD against, uh, against Russia, now the Finns themselves are, are joining because Russia has pushed the envelope that far. Sure, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, it just starts, you start to think whenever so much has changed in global politics over the past couple few years, how strong is, you know, NATO is a strong alliance. It's growing. But is there going to be some heartburn about potential Article 5 invocations with, you know, major, other major superpowers that are being aggressive, not respecting the integrity of sovereign states? I'm concerned that this, in Article 5 invocation and or you know, uh, uh, us wanting to do something is going to lead into, or could lead into something. You know, a, a World War Three is what I'm is right, what I'm right, getting right. at, right? And what mm-hmm. what is think, is that going to create so much potential? I think to a large degree, um, because of the process with Article Five invocations and how rarely they have happened uh, in the past. You know, the primary objective here is defend and deter. So the primary objective, of course, is to prevent World War III. Right. And I think to a large degree, if Article Five is going to be invoked, uh, the pattern is that no matter what the Russian provocations have been in the Baltics and in other parts of Eastern Europe, all of them have fallen short so far of Article Five, And so it's pretty much going to take a direct attack from Russia in order to actually invoke Article 5, which that does bring its own security problems for those countries in terms of speed of response and and things like that. But um, you have, I think, in, in this situation, right... NATO is not likely to be the one to make the first move here. Um, it, is, it is more likely going to be that if World War III is going to start, it will be Russia that starts it uh, by attacking a NATO member state and then obliging the others to, to join in. Now, that also comes to a leadership question. Right. And, and that is, okay, do you have strong enough leadership to prevent Russia from doing that? And, and if you have leadership that's too weak to prevent Russia from doing that, will we actually all go to war? And, and will we actually invoke Article 5 in that particular case? If we do, will everybody really contribute? And, and so that's where your, your dilemma would lie in, in that situation. Right, and that's what mm-hmm. I'm thinking about. And if that were to take place and not all member countries decided to contribute or did not, there was not mutual consensus or majority consensus that NATO should act, then what does that signal to the rest of the world? Is it would signal impotence, a, a watering down of NATO? And so right. mm-hmm. I'm thinking in my mind, NATO, we just gained another member. We are geographically expanding as we get more uh, leadership, more people in NATO. Is there potentially a future watering down or uh, ineptness that's going, not ineptness, but... I mean, to a certain degree, we've already seen that at times. And, and NATO kind of goes through these cycles of, of being serious about its job and then not being serious about its job and being kind of complacent. Um, especially whenever you see uh, these cycles, typically what happens is that the United States has kind of bowed out and, as Barack Obama put it, led from behind, right? Right. <laughs> yeah. and, and that policy didn't work. Um, and so typically you'll get a, a more complacent NATO with a, a leadership by countries like France and Germany and the United States kind of bowing off to the side. On the other hand, whenever you see a resurge in, uh, in seriousness, which happened uh, towards the end of Barack Obama's second term. Um, so we went from at the beginning of his first term being not serious at all to the end of his second term, finally kind of waking up. Um, and, and you had a, a sudden new 
realization that Russia truly was a threat after it uh, annexed Crimea and had invaded the Donbass. And so finally, we start listening to Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, Poland, Romania, right? Um, And we we start uh, trying to work on some of the various uh, things that we had promised them in the past, but had kind of fallen by the wayside. And and so then uh, you have from there between 2015 and uh, and now you have a much more serious NATO with kind of a little blip at the end of 2020, beginning 2021, uh, and really all through 2021. You kind of had a a sort of return to business as usual. And then Russia invades Ukraine, and suddenly we're serious again. And now we have more members joining. And these members on the eastern flank, especially a Finland um, in, in this particular situation, do bring good things to the table for the alliance. Um, they bring in significant um, capabilities in intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance in the Baltic Sea region. Uh, they bring in... A, a significant uh, arsenal of of um, artillery and and other uh, important weapons components, uh, and they also bring in a significant reserve force in in Finland. Uh, Sweden is is going to bring in some of those things, not quite as much as Finland does, and ideologically, Sweden swings a little bit more than Finland does. But um, but you do have a little bit of consistency on the seriousness with an ally like Finland um, in, in this particular situation. So a lot of the ones that I would expect to kind of water down and fall away mm-hmm. would be ones that have been in the alliance since the Cold War. It would be a, a Germany, a France, a Belgium, you know, one of those um, would kind of be, be the issue. And if Belgium does, then that's... Uh, a bit of a problem for for the organization's headquarters, <laughs> right, right? Yeah, and so now NATO and each member country they have to answer to their constituents back home, their citizens back home, and their lawmakers back home. If we talk about the future of NATO and you know this traditional mutual defense based on the security agreement, the security alliance being primarily kinetic in nature. If you blow me up, I'm going to respond with my buddies and we're going to stomp you out. If you shoot my people or sink a ship, we're going to come back with our gang and we're going to, you know, kneecap you. What about when things aren't kinetic? So looking into the future not the future, looking into the present now, and is NATO outdated on some of its understanding of, let's talk about cyber, right? Mm -hmm. Is is a cyber attack an act of war? If it is, or NATO decides it is, what does that invoke, would that invoke, should it invoke an Article 5 declaration? And then, if NATO decides yes, it does. You know, now we have to answer to the constituents in each of these member countries that may not agree with that. And so, as the the as war changes, tactics of war change. Is NATO up to the task of of defending against those, and will there be infighting in the alliance? So. That brings up a, a big, important umbrella term called hybrid warfare. And hybrid warfare is, is basically all those little gray zone provocations that fall short of, of conventional war. So it's your cyber attacks. It's your, it's your industrial sabotage. It's your psychological operations. It's your, um, you know, cutting off of, of some kind of supply line to electricity and creating a blackout or brownout. It's all of these different kinds of things short of conventional war. And, and essentially what it is is, is uh, kind of harassment and see how much we can poke and prod and, and make sure that 
the the state of conflict as we see it from uh, whenever we're when I'm saying we here I'm referring to the Russians primarily using this as their strategy, right? They can kind of push and pull and and increase or decrease the intensity of that conflict as they see it uh, at their will, right? And and what we've generally done with hybrid warfare is we've kind of learn to live with it to a certain degree. Uh, but there are still debates on, you know, what exactly what level, uh, where is the threshold with a, a cyber attack or, or some kind of sabotage incident, right? Where is the level that that goes beyond the gray zone is, and is now considered an act of war. And, and so, well, all of this is is happening. NATO has been developing, especially on its eastern flank, and with well, Finland was a partner member um, with Finland as well. They have been developing a lot of capabilities for assessing and responding to hybrid threats in in that region, especially because that's where it really was the hotbed of of that activity, and so. Finland actually brings in a, uh, NATO has all these kind of research think tanks called Centers of Excellence, right? Finland brings in what's called the Hybrid uh, Center of Excellence, or COE. Okay. And um, on top of that, Estonia has the Cybersecurity uh, COE, uh, Latvia has Strategic Communications, and Lithuania has uh, Energy Security okay. uh, COE. And so looking at those different, uh, different things, NATO is uh, doing what it needs to be doing in order to assess and respond to hybrid threats. But because of the nature of these sorts of threats, that situation is constantly changing. And so it's something that they have to constantly be updating and constantly be working on, continually researching, continually developing uh, new doctrines of how to deal with these uh, these things as they come up, and as a result, one of the things that is is a key issue in um, in determining sort of to answer your your question here, where a a cyber attack or some other kind of hybrid attack does cross that line into an act of war, that will be an ongoing debate, and uh not all nato members may necessarily agree in in that situation so that is something to to be concerned about uh that being said as well there have been lots of different disagreements here and there uh over over certain policies over certain doctrines within nato and nato has historically been resilient uh to survive I mean, in the 1960s, everyone thought NATO was going to crumble because Charles de Gaulle pulled uh, the French military out of it while keeping France within, within the alliance as a political member. Uh, and, and NATO survived that. It survived political turmoil in, in multiple member states like Greece and Portugal. So to a certain degree, the alliance is, is fairly resilient because of its purpose. Uh, one of the big issues that can happen, though, and, and this is uh, getting slightly on a rabbit trail so i'll keep it brief um is is mission creep and mission creep tends to happen mostly whenever we're complacent so mission creep is basically just when we we forget what our original mission is what our main purpose what our main objective is and now we start trying to do things that are beyond the scope of of the alliance right so so now we're trying to you know use a a defensive alliance that's focused on on military security and military strategy and and suddenly now we want to combat climate change with it right right <laughs> and and while that may be you know depending on your your perspective of of the seriousness of climate change and and what all that entails right that may be a worthwhile goal but not for this organization this organization has bigger fish to fry another organization can take that on can, climate can change. take on that issue. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And so, you know, for the, the casual listener, why does the United States benefit from NATO? So the United States benefits from NATO because it benefits from a uh, a more secure Europe, right? And and so 
when we are able to ensure peace and security in in that part of the world, right, then we reduce the chances of a World War III, right? So if we are able to, as an alliance, effectively deter aggression in Europe, we can also deter that aggression at home, right? So when we are able to prevent the Europeans from going and attacking each other, then they're also less likely to be attacking us, right? Especially if we are leading in that organization and, and we are a, a partner, uh, partner state with it. So NATO uh, brings in that important security component. And, and as part of U.S. military strategy, right, NATO is, is really a, a very helpful organization for maintaining peace and stability uh, in uh, in in Europe as a whole, deterring against Russian threats. Um, you know, Asia's not necessarily so much its its primary um, area of area of focus, but by also deterring Russia, we can signal to other nations that we are serious and we mean business, right? And we have the capability to to back that up. So if we are able to protect those interests while also protecting national sovereignty and protecting the the kind of more of our sort of Wilsonian moral ideals um, in in this context, right? You have your hard realism and you have your your more Wilsonian ideas, right? And and so we care about national sovereignty and about uh, freedom of nations, freedom of people, right? So this also plays into that role. Right, and here you have a number of different allies that a you can influence in in directions that you want them to go, right, and b you can really work together to combat mutual threats. So it really provides kind of that two pronged uh, area of influence as well. Right. And it, so then when we talk about Ukraine and Ukraine, NATO being reluctant to allow Ukraine to join, mm-hmm. there's a, there's, why? Well, we can ask, uh, we can ask Emmanuel Macron and uh, Angela Merkel and their, their, uh, their respective governments as to why. Uh, because those two countries uh, were the primary ones that were, reluctant to let Ukraine join at that time. Uh, most of the eastern flank countries were all for it. Uh, the United States was trying kind of not to rock the boat too much uh, with it. Uh, so the United States was a little hesitant, especially in, in dealing with the French and Germans, um, but also in, in dealing with the Russians, uh, because we had enough people who thought that, um, that if we allow Ukraine to be part of NATO, that that would provoke Russia. Right. Would that be a liability to NATO to have Ukraine in its membership, knowing the tension between Russia and Ukraine as it existed? At the time, we kind of, a lot of people thought it was. Um, I will admit that I was not necessarily 100% sure what to think on that. I kind of went into maybe analysis paralysis on that uh, because... Looking at the whole picture, it was a really difficult decision uh, as to what uh, what you would do because is it a going to provoke Russia to to attack Ukraine or b is it going to deter Russia from attacking Ukraine? And I think to a large degree, what what you're dealing with in that particular security dilemma is okay. Well, how will the Russians respond? And and so then you get into threat perceptions and, and other issues uh, on, on that line. Um, so if we had let Ukraine join NATO, then we would have really needed a very strong, very solid deterrent, and we would have needed the, the will to fight if necessary, uh, which through much of that time, frankly, we didn't have. Um, at that point... However, um, looking at the way the Ukrainians are performing currently, of course, with our help, but uh, with, with our equipment and, and things like that, but they are performing remarkably well, in part because they are bent on the survival of their own nation, 
and um and it's it's always a a harder fight whenever you are trying to to survive sure right so so adding the ukrainians at that point in time uh militarily you know their their military wasn't great in the early days uh but they've rapidly improved it so if you know if the war were to end and uh and ukraine was surviving came out on top in that and uh, and wanted to join nato then as it stands today it would be a valuable member sure that being said uh, again you have the the security dilemma as to threat perceptions and and otherwise um and whether or not that this would provoke russia but a lo- two of the the nations that were the most afraid of this were at the time france and germany and france and germany were really behind uh, a lot of the agreements in in the ceasefire in the donbass for a long time with the minsk accords and uh, and we don't really have a whole lot of time to go into all of that but was that france uh, and germany not wanting to rock the boat that was in that case yeah that was france and germany basically brokering an agreement that uh really favored russia in every single step of the way uh throughout all of that time frame because france and germany at that point looking at a hard realism economic uh perspective and their dependence on russian gas and and other things particularly in the case of germany not as much with france um they were looking at russia as a more valuable economic partner than ukraine at that time and so this is a big part of the reason why uh those two nations in particular stymied uh, ukraine's accession into nato at the time okay okay so i you know i'm thinking of this fear of an article 5 invocation if ukraine is a member Mm. other member other nato member countries are in fear of a potential article 5 invocation with ukraine being a member state and seeing ukraine as a liability at that point in time now Ukraine's not a member, but they're getting all of this support from NATO countries. Mm-hmm. And so what really is the difference? Right. So the difference kind of lies in that, that deterrence, right? Had, Na- had Ukraine been a NATO member, it might have had a better shot at deterrence. But that being said, at the same time, uh, we can really point to failures of our own leadership in the West as okay. to we failed to deter Russia from attacking Ukraine. Uh, that being said, uh, NATO membership would have given Ukraine a guarantee of, of more help, um, which also would have likely made Russia think twice about attacking it, because it would know then that the other members were bound to help it, um, which, to a large degree, doesn't really play well in our our mentality in democratic nations we tend to think in the short term we don't tend to think as as much long-term strategy because a lot of countries were so afraid that if we accept ukraine that then russia will attack that we didn't have the the foresight to think if we accept ukraine that means russia now faces you know, at that point in time, 30 more enemies right, right? now. Finland's the 31st member. Right. And, and does Russia really want to face 30 more enemies? Well, the Baltics would say, no, they don't because we're still here. Right. right? Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and so that is, uh, kind of where that goes. Again, I'm not necessarily going to draw the line and say we should or shouldn't have, uh, accepted them at that point in time. Um, and I don't envy the people who would have had to make that decision. Sure. But looking at it from that perspective, I think to a large degree, we could have, with better deterrence, either by accepting Ukraine or by having stronger leadership in the West, uh, which really is the one that matters more at this point, because by, that, by this juncture, we had been kicking the can down the road long enough that you know, it was, it was going to take a while before Ukraine could be eligible anyway. But um, that really that need for stronger leadership in the West, uh, we were lacking that. And, and we had signaled our, our lack of strength through things like Afghanistan, through things like green lighting Nord Stream 2. Um, and, and all of these events lead up to the invasion or reinvasion of, of Ukraine because 
Russia calculated that now was the time to do it. Right. And if we're stronger and we have a, a more credible deterrent that shows that we have both the means and the will to fight, then Russia's maybe going to just stick to its hybrid games instead. Right. right? And so did you see that we do, we, we have the means here in the West, the United States being one of the larger members of NATO, do we have the will or does our leadership have the will to actually stand behind and support if push comes to shove an article five invocation with another major state actor? I think at this point we're woefully uh, unprepared for it. Okay. Um, do I think that eventually we, if we were in a situation where there is an article five invocation, do I think that we will have the will to fight by that point? Probably. But that being said, we won't be prepared for it. And so our response will be too slow. Um, and that's tragic. Really. We need stronger leadership in order to, you know, you prevent war by showing you're, you're willing to have war. Right. And by showing that we are so, so hesitant and so unwilling to, to have that situation, we are actually inviting it through the front door. And, and so if we have an Article 5 invocation, I think, you know, we currently lack the will. And therefore, we will be unprepared when we do have the will. Sure. And so does Russia see this? So, Absolutely. you know, Latvia, Lithuania, they're not going to go on their own right. against Russia. Mm -hmm. And so as much as Russia can say they're annoyed and or threatened by Finland now becoming a NATO member and NATO lining up on their Western flank, I'm kind of thinking about the Russian analysis of NATO as it mm -hmm. exists and you know, if some of the major powerhouses in NATO don't seem able to or willing to because of politics and inept leadership, I'm just curious what the, what their real threat perception is on Russia's side with NATO, other than publicly saying, we don't like it, we're pushing back, we're doing... Is it giving them additional... It is giving them additional reasons publicly to say they're doing what they're doing. I just wonder what their real assessment is on their end. I think to a large degree, what the Russians are thinking is uh, we have to act quickly because we don't know which direction the leadership pendulum is going to swing in, in these other countries, right? And, and and particularly in the United States, because we are the the main peer competitor there. But um, what you're also uh, what you're also seeing at this point with the Russians is that a lot of their their public statements are essentially that kind of gaslighting justification for for why they're they're doing what they're doing. And if they can convince enough people that. Uh, that essentially Russia is is only just protecting itself, and that it's uh, that it's a victim, and that we're the aggressor, and and on and on and on. Then it can also impact political outcomes at home, which weaken the alliance as well, buying them more time. So the Russian analysis is is really take advantage of it while you got it, and um, and at the same time try to spread whatever messages that you can in order to perpetuate the length of time that you have with weaker leadership, with less willing leadership. And, and so, yeah, Russia is going to continue to, uh, to make these kinds of statements. And it's even going to continue making these kind of statements whenever we do have stronger leadership, because it wants to convince the public to vote for leaders that are more weak. Right. And, and on top of that, uh, it's, uh, it's also going to, be looking at uh, sort of a, a situation where it feels like its window of opportunity might be going away. Okay. And, and so it wants to act faster uh, okay. as, as a result. Now, with countries like Finland and the Baltics, 
those were maybe a little bit lower on on Russia's priority scale. But Russia really doesn't like that um, that these countries are joining in because there is, to a certain degree, a, a sense of paranoia in Russia about its its power and its standing and its near abroad. Um, but a lot of this, like I said, is is kind of just messaging. It's it's uh, can we convince the rest of the world that we have legitimate security concerns when in reality our our enemy is is a defensive alliance and and not an offensive one, right? Uh, so all of that is is coming into play, and and Russia is probably going to be a little bit more belligerent in in its uh, in its language uh, for a while. It may escalate hybrid warfare uh, for a little while. But it is probably not going to. Uh, it's probably not going to rock the boat uh, with with any kind of conventional warfare for the time being. Okay. Okay. So that is NATO and the Security Alliance. Why it's important for NATO and NATO members to be strengthened. Why it's you know we've NATO has ramped up everything that they're doing as of late. But that's why it's important to the United States, why it's relevant in international affairs, security agreements in general, um, bilateral, multilateral security agreements are important. And NATO is critical. It's preventing, it's deterring aggressive action by hostile nations in Europe. And if there is peace and stability in Europe, there and economic, economic stability, there should be greater peace and stability in the rest of the world. Right. And, uh, and in, in relation to us as well, whenever there is greater peace and stability in the world, then we have fewer chances of, of being attacked ourselves. Right. Um, so that is a big part of why, why NATO matters here. Um, one last thing that I would like to bring up related to, to Finland's joining, uh, is, is maritime issues in the Baltic Sea. Okay. Um, and that is, has been an area of weakness for, for NATO for a long time. And Finland contributes, uh, in a pretty significant way. And Sweden will as well, whenever it, uh, whenever it is, uh, also officially going to join, uh, it's next in line. And, and so Finland uh, and and Sweden both will enable uh, us to have a greater kind of situational awareness in the Baltic Sea region and can potentially help us to flip the balance of power and the status quo in the Baltic Sea with naval issues, right? So Russia's Baltic Sea fleet was far from anything impressive. Uh, it was really actually not very good at all, but it had enough power to maintain the status quo and to do little harassment operations and, and really kind of keep that region under, right, under its thumb in, in naval affairs. And, and we had no real deterrent or power projection in the Baltic Sea, hardly at all. And we also had very limited situational awareness because of a number of different uh, technological uh, capabilities that weren't there because of a number of different um, military capabilities that weren't there. Uh, and also because of certain physical geographic realities of, of that particular region. But with Finland and Sweden joining, that is going to really help fill in those gaps in intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance so that we'll have a greater sense of of uh, the overall picture of what's going on in the Baltic Sea region, and that will help with maritime security in that region tremendously, helping to possibly flip the status quo over there, which is big for any kind of Baltic scenario, and, and really will help to prevent any sort of um, invasion of the Baltics, and even help if an invasion of the Baltics happens, it will help us to reinforce them with troops and supplies far more quickly. Sure. Yeah. And that's a great point about that maritime security situation up in those far northern latitudes. 
um, and even talking about you know different types of weapons that can be based, different types of security agreements. So NATO is a defensive security alliance, but deeper integration of member states that, that are part of NATO. There, there are deeper integrations that start to take place and start to develop where we share more significant capabilities between partner nations and become more embedded in all of these member states around the world. And so, you know, that is a significant threat to adversaries of NATO is that additional, you brought up the power pr- projection of hard assets being placed in certain areas, but also they know that there's a more finite, deeper integration taking place that is not beneficial to them in their foreign policy. Right. They have less latitude to be aggressive in that region, and, and it will be much harder for them to hide. And so their ability to pull off certain actions in the Baltic Sea region will be significantly reduced by this addition. Because now Russia will be closed in in that area. And every country along the Baltic Sea, with the exception of Russia itself and its Kaliningrad exclave, will now be a member of NATO. Okay. Okay. Um, Anything else you want to add on NATO before we might talk about this book giveaway? Yes, uh, let's talk about the book. Yeah, so mm-hmm. Jim Olson was in giving, uh, had, having a nice discussion with us on intelligence as an instrument of statecraft. He's the author of two books. The most recent book, To Catch a Spy, The Art of Counterintelligence, is a great primer on the counterintelligence threat that America faces. He has graciously agreed to let us pick some winners for some signed books to catch a spy. And so... Forgive me while I take a moment and pull up our subscribers list. We do have 83 subscribers on our on our channel. We thank you guys for supporting us, for watching our content, and for subscribing, liking. Please continue to comment. Please continue to help our channel grow. Share our stuff. Spread the word. Let your friends know. Send them, send them the videos and get them on board too. Absolutely. So I'm going to pull up the subscriber list and randomly pick a subscriber here that we will give away signed copy of Jim Olson's book. If I can figure this out, give me one second. And for some reason, there's uh, many of you subscribers that you don't show up in our subscribers list because I think your privacy settings are turned on. And so for that, forgive us, but uh, you know we appreciate security. It's probably the smart thing to do. But if you do want to win a copy of Jim Olson's book, signed by Jim Olson, we need to know who you are. Let's see. I don't even have the full list here. How does the grumpy pear sound? Sounds great to me. <laughs> sound day, hey, the grumpy pear, if you are watching... We'll also reach out to you, the Grumpy Pair. We would like to mail you a signed copy of Jim Olson's book, The Art of Counterintelligence to Catch a Spy. To Catch a Spy, The Art of Counterintelligence. And uh, congrats. When are we going to do another drawing, Matt? Two weeks from now? Two weeks from now. Two weeks from now, we can do another drawing. So please, if you know somebody or you yourself would like to potentially win a copy of Jim Olson's book, let us know who you are. Turn your privacy settings off. Let us track you and uh, get all your data. <laughs> right. Well, th- I think that'll do it for episode five of International Affairs. And we will be back next week, hoping to enrich in your understanding of international affairs. Thank you. <laughs>